You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's said that in space, no one can hear you scream, although people in space have probably not heard that. But perhaps that's because they weren't listening with the right equipment. Anything, Bob? Not a peep. Okay, plan B. Engage the highly sensitive sound wave detector when nothing else works, or the HSS WDWNEW, the red switch. Oh, why am I just seeing that now? Okay, hang on, I'm picking up something. It's someone screaming, coming from the International Space Station. My goodness, it's horrifying. Let's listen. Ah, this is so frustrating. We're going too fast over the South Seas for me to collect Pokemon. It's driving me crazy. Sound can't travel through the airless voids of space, but with the right instruments, scientists can pick up all types of cosmic vibrations, the sort that we can make audible. So we have the sound of two black holes crashing into each other. I'm Molly Bentley. And I'm Seth Shostak. Welcome to Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute, where researchers investigate the nature and origin of life. On Big Picture Science, we step back to get the wide-angle view on science and technology, and in this episode, breaking the sounds of silence. After a decade of listening, a half-billion-dollar physics experiment has finally detected gravitational waves, predicted by Albert Einstein. Hear those sounds, and oh, here's a riff. Can music provide a clue to how the universe really works? A musician-slash-theoretical physicist thinks it can, and he reveals what musical inspiration John Coltrane drew from Einstein. Hang on, don't move. Gravitational waves are passing through you right now. Okay, you didn't feel them, and they didn't leave a trace. But hey, you've got to appreciate, some of the stronger of those waves have been traveling for billions of years before reaching you. The detection of these super subtle gravitational waves has eluded scientists for decades, even though Einstein himself predicted their existence with his theory of general relativity as the result of uh, the stretching and squeezing of space-time. Then a press conference in early 2016 that would have made Al's hair stand on end. I mean, more than it already did. Ladies and gentlemen, we have detected gravitational waves. We did it. And as Caltech physicist David Reitz and others would point out, it only took two kilometers long detectors, a thousand scientists, 16 countries, a half billion dollars, and one spectacular cosmic smash-up to do it. So these gravitational waves were produced by two colliding black holes, came together, merged to form a single black hole about 1.3 billion years ago. They were detected by LIGO, the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. LIGO is the most precise measuring device ever built. And it's unusual in other ways. LIGO doesn't detect light. Unlike most of our observational equipment, it doesn't make pictures of the sky. LIGO, the instrument that made the detection, is much more like a recording device. It's recording a wave in the shape of space-time. Imagine a ringing drum. So it's recording the ringing of the drum, and it plays it back to us as sound. 
I'm Jana Levin, a professor of physics and astronomy at Barnard College of Columbia University. She's also the author of Black Hole Blues and Other Songs from Outer Space. Yes, songs. Our detection of gravitational waves and the translation of them into audible sound is music to physicists' ears. Now, we do have some other cosmic sounds already on file. We've had recordings of pulsars, which are the spinning corpses of dead stars, since the 1960s. Pretty cool. I always get a kick out of hearing pulsars. But what we're hearing there are radio waves converted into sound. Here, here's another one. The newly collected sound of colliding black holes, however, is a little less rhythmic. It's described as a chirp. Take a listen. It sort of sweeps up in frequency. So what we're hearing is the final stage of the merger of the two black holes, and it sort of sounds like a whoop. And it's kind of an unexpected sound. I think people expect something more dramatic and booming from the black holes, but it has this very characteristic chirp. And so now sound is a tool with which scientists can recreate cosmic events, much the same way that if you recorded a ringing drum, you can recreate the size and the motion of the mallets that rang it. Scientists are trying to predict the sounds of mammoth cosmic events and also, from the sound, reconstruct the source. In this case, the source was 1.3 billion light years away. And so we have a lot of evidence from telescopes that show that indirect evidence for black holes, but we see very few. The prediction is actually that there are millions of black holes in every galaxy. And not only that, but there's a supermassive black hole in the center of our own galaxy. It's four million times the mass of the sun. And that there are supermassive black holes in the centers of most galaxies. So the fact that we can't see them with telescopes is a real limitation. And that's another reason why this has been such an exciting detection. You might be able to hear them instead of seeing them. You might be able to hear them. And those two black holes were dark. They were, the collision was the most powerful event we've detected since the Big Bang. And yet none of the power came out in light. There is no telescope that could record that event, as far as we understand. And these two black holes, they were orbiting one another. They're, they're, they're buddies. Yeah, right? they might have had a very long life together. They, they, the expectation is that they were two stars, very big stars, that died. And when they died, each one formed a black hole one probably many years before the other, and that they spent billions of years slowly coming together, losing you know, the energy to the gravitational waves the whole time. So for the past several billion years, those gravitational waves have been coming to the Earth since single-celled organisms were, were fossilizing on the Earth. And it was only the final one-fifth of a second that was loud enough for LIGO to hear. Okay, so given that there are probably a large number, I won't essay mm -hmm. a number, but a, a large number of double black holes, if you will, orbiting mm -hmm. one another. The chances of hearing one this month aren't terribly high because you've got to catch them in the last fifth of a second That's of their right. dance together. Exactly. If we could hear them when they were very, very far apart and millions of years or billions of years away from the final collision, then we'd be hearing them in our own galaxy, but it's just too quiet. Well, Jana, what about supernovae? I mean, mm -hmm. you know, exploding stars, big stars, they run out of fuel, they blow up in a massive explosion. It's mm -hmm. really dramatic. And it's also energetic. I mean, they release a lot of energy. Mm -hmm. Big star explodes for a few days. It might shine as brightly as the entire galaxy. Mm -hmm. Does that make a gravitational wave that's strong enough for this instrument, LIGO, to find? Well, that's unclear. For, for many years, uh, when the first generation of instruments was built around the year 2000, people were hoping supernova would be the loudest events in the universe. But that was based on theory, and theory has a lot of uncertainties and a lot of unknowns. And, and right now, people aren't sure that supernova will be loud enough. And one of the reasons is if a, a star explodes per perfectly the same in all directions, it actually will not ring any gravitational waves. It has to be lumpy or lopsided for it to work to create the gravitational waves. So it could explode with all that power and light and zero power in the gravitational waves. If they're very asymmetric, exploding in some crazy way, then yes, we have a hope of hearing them and they'll sound completely different than the merger of two black holes. They'll sound more like a whale song. Okay, so a perfectly symmetric supernova would go 
silently yes. into that long darkness. Well, yes, just like a black hole sitting there by itself and spinning is so symmetric that it also creates no gravitational waves. So it, once those black holes merged, they went quiet when they formed a final black hole. And is the same true for uh, spinning neutron stars? Some listeners will know about those. Uh, those are responsible for what we call pulsars, and they mm-hmm. certainly make uh, make noise in the radio. Would they make something that a gravitational wave detector like LIGO could pick up? We really hope so. So if the neutron star, again, is a perfect sphere, and neutron stars are incredibly pristine. They have very, very few imperfections on them. But if it has even a little mountain, which on a neutron star might be a few centimeters, um, a mountain would, would be hard to build on a neutron star, but that would qualify enough that it creates almost like a paddle. So as a neutron star spins, it paddles space and time around it like something in the ocean and it creates waves, the gravitational waves. So we would hear a kind of monotone coming from something like you that. You just sort of a boo. Yeah, exactly. Kind of yeah. So they oh. all have their very unique notes and sounds. Yeah, yeah. They're members of a cosmic orchestra in a yeah, way, aren't it's they? It's like well, we're finally recording the soundtrack. <laughs> We've had this like silent movie for 300 years since Galileo, and now we finally have a kind of sound soundtrack to accompany it. But what about the biggest noisemaker of all, the obvious one, the Big Bang itself? Did it make a bang? For sure. So there's no question that the Big Bang must have been a very cacophonous event where there was just random noise coming from the um, the lumpiness of the creation of the universe and all the matter and energy in it. The problem with the Big Bang is that by now it's not only quiet, the notes are very, very low because they've, they've gone down in frequency as the universe expands. So very few people people expect LIGO to make a firm detection on that. It might be able to put limits on it, but we really need something based in space to hear the Big Bang because we need to record lower notes than LIGO can record. LIGO is sensitive to the same frequency range as the piano is. And um, and so that sets the kind of cataclysmic events it can detect. Only certain members of the orchestra will be heard. That's right. All right, well, we've been talking about LIGO, Uh and uh, maybe we ought to discuss a little bit about how it works. I mean, it's been 100 years, almost Mm -hmm. exactly now 100 years, right, since Al Einstein suggested that gravity waves might exist, that every time you shake a bit of matter, you Mm -hmm. create some gravity waves, Mm -hmm. and this is the first time we've proven that that was true. How do you detect these things? Because in the early days, didn't they think these things are going to be too weak to ever detect? Oh, yeah. In fact, Einstein, in 1915, right after he correctly writes down the general theory of relativity, considers it the most important topic to turn to gravitational waves. And are they real? And do they really transport energy? And if you think of space-time as curved, then as the sun moves or the earth moves, then the curves must follow them, creating these waves. And um, he kept going back and forth, actually. He wrote many papers saying they didn't exist, they did exist, they didn't exist. It went on for decades. It's a very difficult problem. So not only weren't they sure they were real, he sort of thought, you know, there's nothing in the universe that would make gravitational waves strong enough to even consider detecting because he also didn't believe black holes were real. So this is this is really something that when the first pioneers, Kip Thorne and Ray Weiss and later Ron Giver, when they first set out to do this, they weren't they didn't have the support of the whole astronomical community because people were still arguing about what was real and what wasn't real. Well, but they weren't the first to try this, right? There was a physicist, I actually knew this guy, mm-hmm. Joe Weber, mm-hmm. at the University of Maryland back in mm-hmm. the, I think it was the 1960s. Mm-hmm. And Joe Weber not only wanted to detect gravitational waves, but he claimed he had built an instrument that had. Can, mm-hmm. Maybe you can describe what he was doing. Sure. So Joe was a very ingenious experimentalist and, and invented many um, great ideas in physics. Unfortunately, even though he became the pioneer of gravitational wave experiment, it was also sort of his undoing, one of those real tragic hero in the Greek sense uh, stories. So Joe set out to detect these gravitational waves before people had predictions for how loud they would be or what frequency they would be. He just thought, you know, well, they're all arguing, I'll go outside and have a look around. And he built these aluminum bars, which were kind of like a tuning fork. So the idea... They they were big, though. They were big, but they could fit in a room. So nowhere near the scale of what we're talking about with LIGO, which is four kilometers long in two different directions. So um, they were heavy, but they could fit in a laboratory the size of a garage. And, And the idea was that as a gravitational wave passed, if it was the right frequency, it would ring the tuning fork and you would be able to detect the ringing of the tuning fork for for a little bit afterwards. Um, Unfortunately, he claimed detections, and while it inspired similar instruments, Weber bars, all over the world, no one else heard a thing. 
And did Joe Weber accept that? The fact that his results were not confirmed? I mean, that that's a pretty harsh thing to say to a scientist. You've, you've just done something that's absolutely Nobel Prize worthy, but actually you didn't find it. Oh, it was terrible. He, he went from this incredible fame and acclaim to being basically a leper in the scientific community. And I, I feel great sympathy for Joe because he did do something really important, which is which is just like any explorer striking out into the world with what he could do at the time. And he felt very ill done by, as Virginia Trimble, the famous astronomer and his wife says. So then we go on to LIGO. Mm-hmm. LIGO was conceived, I think, more or less in the same era as Joe Weber, maybe slightly after. It's about 10 years later. 10 years later. And very much influenced by him. So what was the idea with LIGO? They weren't going to build a big metal bar, put it in a lab, and wait for it to shake. Right. So LIGO was a different idea, but they still didn't really know the sizes of what to expect. So you asked earlier how it works. So it works by suspending mirrors as freely as you can so that they're they're completely free to bob on the wave, much like something floating in the ocean. If a gravitational wave passes, these mirrors will bob slightly. And the idea that Ray Weiss came up with was if you could send a laser between these mirrors along, so the mirrors would be at the ends of an L-shaped instrument, that they could keep track of the location of the mirrors. And if the, the you sent a laser down and the light came back, Back and did not travel exactly the same length in both directions, that the light would interfere imperfectly. And it would create a pattern that measured the degree to which the mirrors had floated on the wave, had bobbed on the wave. The first instrument that Ray built was only 1.5 meters long, okay, in each of the directions of the L. So that's quite tiny, and it did fit in a laboratory. And it was many years of struggling with this instrument and getting a lot of flack from his colleagues for it that he realized it can't be 1.5 meters long or even 10 or even 40 meters long. It has to be in the range of kilometers. And that's when they envisioned this huge instrument that was four kilometers long in each direction. What they're trying to measure here is the fact that, you know, you have essentially, I don't know, a yardstick lying on your desk. And if a gravity wave comes through my office, as presumably it's it's happening all the time. Right now it's happening. I'm sure it's going through my body. Right now. now. Yeah. Right. So, you know, it causes that stick to get bigger and smaller only Mm -hmm. because space time is getting bigger and smaller. Yeah. In this case, looking for colliding black holes, which after all make big waves, how much was the distance from one end of LIGO to the other Mm -hmm. going to change? What did they have to measure? So the stunning achievement really even if it had nature had failed to provide sources, it, it was already a technological achievement. The stunning achievement is that they're able to measure the difference across four kilometers in the location of the mirror of four kilometers plus or minus one ten thousandth the width of a proton. It's an inconceivably delicate measurement. And they finally did it, what, last year, right? Well, that's right. The previous generation of machines was pretty good. They were almost at a thousandth of the width of a proton, but it wasn't good enough. And the noise just from planes flying overhead, trucks driving by, logging nearby from lumber companies and earthquakes in China was too much for the instrument and it drowned out the signals. Well, finally, Jana, Mm -hmm. you know, for most people, the idea that you prove that some prediction made with some tensor calculus by Albert Einstein, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, a century ago about the gravitational waves. I mean, you know, that sounds sort of interesting. Mm-hmm. If you were to show them the bill, they might say, well, okay, uh, is it worth it? What door is this going to open, the detection of gravitational waves? I think to some extent we can't predict what the impact will be. We know the impact is already great. How uh, momentous or history changing will the detection be? In some ways, we don't really know yet. But this is the history of science, that technological achievements lead to fall off in human experience, uh, the internet and our cell phones and all this stuff. But that's not the reason why any scientist does this. They do it because it reminds us that we're all under the same sky, that there's some communing with something bigger than us. And what will the impact of that be on us culturally? It's very hard to say. And if in the future we truly do have a soundtrack to go along this sort of silent movie, I mean, maybe it will be like the invention of the telescope itself. Maybe it'll be that big. Jana Levin, thanks so very much for talking with us. Thank you for having me. Jana Levin is a physicist and astronomer at Barnard College at Columbia University and the author of Black Hole Blues and Other Songs from Outer Space. (laughs) 
Coming up, a jazz music and theoretical physics combo. You know, your ordinary mashup. We have something for everyone. It's Universal Music on Big Picture Science. With Wired Science, you can geek out all you want. It's a podcast for anyone obsessed with math, science, space, biology, or technology. And it provides in-depth coverage on current news and discoveries. From strange diseases that turn your tongue fuzzy to tech that'll help crops grow from space. New episodes are released nearly every day, and they're typically under 10 minutes, so you can easily make them a part of your daily routine. Listen in the morning while you're getting ready or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. Music and mathematics. Often people are talented at one or the other, but not necessarily both. A brilliant concert pianist might not be able to solve a basic algebraic equation, and a Fields Medal mathematician doesn't necessarily know which end of a flute to blow into. But some people excel at both math and music. Stefan Alexander, professor of physics at Brown University. I get in those moods sometimes where I just need to pick up the horn and not think and just play any old thing. Dr. Alexander is a jazz musician and a theoretical physicist, and he's interested in the intersection between them, which brought me up short. I wondered, do I need training in music theory or theoretical physics to talk to him? No. Um, (laughs) Well, I strongly believe that you can actually understand a lot of jazz music and theory and theoretical physics when you bring them together and use music, particularly jazz music and physics as analogies, and also from common day experience that you already have with music. You know, Mary Had a Little Lamb, everybody knows that song, and you can, just by speaking about music that you're already familiar with, you could actually understand a lot of music theory. Wait, are you saying you can tie Mary Had a Little Lamb into, say, quantum physics? I am definitely saying that. physics, well, that's the behavior of the very small. You know, things like atoms and even smaller particles, quarks, photons, electrons. And in quantum theory, everything acts like a particle, but also like a wave. Classical Newtonian physics and even Einstein's theory of relativity deal with the behavior of big things, from the Big Bang to saxophones, even to lambs. Dr. Alexander has an interest in combining music and all areas of physics, not solely in an effort to find harmony between his two passions, but as a scheme to use one to inform the other. Now, we heard about the sounds that cosmic phenomena, such as the collision of two black holes, can create, and what those waves might tell us about an event 1.4 billion years ago. But can we go farther and see the universe as more than a collection of sounds? but as having musical structure? Well, Dr. Alexander thinks so, and it's not the first time that that has been done. The ancient philosophical idea, known as the music of the spheres, tried to connect the movement of the planets to music. Stefan Alexander uses music as a tool to help shed light on the most vexing questions of modern cosmology, such as why the sound patterns produced in the Big Bang, the echoes of which we detect as the cosmic microwave background, would come to create stars and galaxies and planets. Over my last 15 years as a researcher in theoretical physics, working in cosmology, studying the largest things in the universe to studying the subatomic world and how those two worlds speak to each other, one of the things that I'm very passionate about communicating is that there is sort of like a mother concept that underlies all of those different branches of physics. And that's the physics of vibration, the physics of waves. The idea that particles themselves can be described as waves, subatomic particles. The warping of space-time could ripple like a gravitational wave. 
but also that music itself is based on tone, notes, or sound waves. And so with that common language, we could actually make parallels, very interesting parallels between modern physics, quantum physics, cosmology, and music. Well, let's and talk a little bit about that because, you know, the universe making sound, most people figure, you know, in space, nobody can hear you scream or anything mm-hmm. else. Right? Mm-hmm. It's, you know, there's no air and all mm-hmm. that sort of stuff. But there's the cosmic microwave background, right? Mm-hmm. That's the leftover glow from the Big Bang that was found in the 1960s. People continue to study it. There are satellites out there studying it. And they, sh- they give you a snapshot of the universe, you know, right, right after it was born. So that's really old stuff. But at that point, the universe was filled with really hot stuff, but the temperature wasn't exactly uniform everywhere, right? Mm -hmm. So some places it was a little hotter, some places a little colder. And where it was a little colder, it was a little denser. So, you know, maybe that that gas eventually collapsed to form stars, galaxies, and you and me. All that stuff came out of that. But because of these variations in temperature, there were also, you know, sort of pressure waves in there, and that's sound, right? It's literally sound. It's exactly the same sound phenomenon that an instrument makes, and there the analogy is exact. Um, In the early universe, the best way to understand the physics that's occurring to actually form the first structures in our universe is that it's literally sound waves that exist, that carry energy in the cosmic microwave background, radiation. And as you point out, radiation pressure, just like air pressure waves, carry sound. What, what, is there yeah. any way to hear those, those those sounds? I mean, you know. Can you translate them to a frequency that is audible? Yes, you can. In the cosmic microwave background radiation, we actually have the data of those oscillations, those sound oscillations. You know, we can turn that into sound. But they're going to be, you know, really low sounds, right? Because, I mean, you're talking about, you know, huge distances and long mm-hmm. time scales and all that. I mean, it's sort of like, you know, I don't know, John Lennon used to talk about hitting a two-by-four with his hand to make really sub-audible frequencies, which you couldn't hear, but maybe if you sped up the tape, so to speak, uh, you could hear them. I mean, is there some way to speed up the tape on the, the... You could do that using synthesis. We could basically tune that very low frequency to a higher frequency, an equivalent frequency, just like an octave, a high C, sounds very similar to a low C, right? So we can do that. Um, from memory, I believe that the dominant note in the cosmic microwave background radiation is an A note, roughly 50 octaves below middle A on a piano. Stefan, can you do it with your voice? Can you give us just a sense of what the cosmic microwave background radiation sounds like? Can you do a little... The sped up version. Yeah, yeah, yeah the one we can hear. A little vocal improv right now. Something like this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's it, it's a combination of noise um, superimposed by a set of tones, but then of course there's the whole improvisational aspect, you know, which has to do with improvisational music. And so I'm also making parallels between an improvisational universe and the idea that quantum mechanics looks something like improvisation as well. I'm familiar with, or we may be familiar with, jazz improvisation, but to think of the universe as improvising is a bit of a stretch of the imagination, unless, as you write about, we consider that this is one universe of many universes, had there been multiple universes, and this is the one that turned out this way and has been tweaked so that we're sitting here, but in another universe it might turn out differently. Is that the idea? Yeah, that's that's pretty pretty on. I mean, that clear explanation of the multiverse. But how is the universe improving? I, even though I said that, I'm not sure that I even understand it. Yeah, so one way of understanding this is music. So when we look at something, for example, like the blues, the blues actually has a structure. Four beats per bar and 12 bars in the blues. meaning that as time evolves, that structure repeats itself. Okay? What I mean by that is the harmonic structure of the blues repeats itself every 12 bars. So if I'm a blues soloer, I have an opportunity every time the structure cycles. And so improvisation is not just some random occurrence it's actually informed by, in this case, a temporal structure. 
And there's also a harmonic structure that also informs what notes are agreeable harmonically. And so the analogy now becomes clear with the universe, that if we assume that the universe is cyclical, meaning that it undergoes cycles of expansions and contractions into a big bang and out of a big bang, the universe could actually improvise or solo the ratio of the forces which we know is essential for producing carbon in stars, such that carbon-based life can form. In this case, the universe is very old and had been cycling like this harmonic blue structure, okay, for a very long time. In other words, what you're saying there, Stefan, is that the fact that our universe seems to be nicely set up for our existence so we can have this conversation mm -hmm. is a consequence of the fact that it's, you know, I don't know, it's changing itself. It's like a chameleon, you know, it goes through an expansion, then maybe a contraction again, then you get a slightly different universe. And so these go on forever. Mm -hmm. And most of those universes might be, you know, pretty lousy, but this one happens to be good just because we're here at the right time or turning it around, actually, we wouldn't be here if it weren't the right time. Exactly. Is there exactly. actually evidence, though, for a multiverse, or is this all theoretical? So there are people who are searching very hard, um, especially in the cosmic microwave background, radiation, a snapshot of the baby universe, looking for signatures of the multiverse. Well, in other words, what you're suggesting here, Stefan, is that this is more than just an analogy between music and maybe the kind of, I don't know, waves that permeate the early cosmos. This is more than, hey, look, they're kind of similar. This might give you some insights into maybe how the universe really works. Yes. One of the most important questions in cosmology is how did the universe develop all of this rich structure of galaxies, clusters of galaxies, planets, stars from a featureless universe roughly 14 billion years ago, we now understand that those structures began as sound waves. The energy in those sound waves collapsed into forming stars, eventually galaxies. And so we can ask a question about what happened before that. What set up those sound waves? How did those sound waves come about? And well, anything that produces sound waves, you can then say it's like an instrument. In this case, it's a universe that's acting like the instrument. And taking that analogy further to the earlier stages of the universe, if the universe is like an instrument, it's a special kind of instrument because there's no one there to play that instrument. So it's actually an instrument that plays itself. And that analogy making functions like a tool because we're theorists, I'm a theorist, and we don't sometimes have the correct experiments. So by thinking of the universe as an instrument that plays itself, we can now go beyond just what we know and see what new physics and what new cosmology we can learn about that universe. You know, this idea of music and the cosmos, when you, when you think about you know, hundreds of years ago, the, the cosmos was the solar system mostly, and there was this idea, it was cooked up by the Greeks, of music of the spheres, and mm -hmm. it sounds like you know an album I might want to try and download, but mm -hmm. can you it does tell exist. me? Yeah, well, all right, what was the music of the spheres, and why is it that I don't ever hear it? Yeah, um, the music of the spheres was an idea from the Pythagoreans. You know, Pythagoras, roughly 500 BC, had this conviction, and this was at the dawn of the birth of science, and Pythagoras had this conviction that the planets were basically playing tones in some sort of cosmic harmony. And this harmony had to actually do with whole integers, right? And this was his conviction. So there's some connection between number and actually musical harmony. So it's kind of interesting that at the dawn of science, astronomy and physics and music were unified. Well, I mean, I can imagine how they might think that. I mean, they could see how long it took Mars to go, well, they didn't know that it was mm -hmm. going around the sun, but to go around the sky, and that was like two years, mm -hmm. and the Earth is like one year, and they say, oh, two to one, that's, you know, maybe, maybe that's an octave or something like that. Maybe, maybe Jupiter is a third or a fifth or something. I mean, there might be some relationship there, but in the end, wasn't this, I mean, this was faulty because they were kind of idealizing, you know, the solar system the way before they had telescopes, they thought the moon must be unblemished and, and that kind, that the heavens must be perfect in some sense. Is this, you know, music a consequence of thinking, you know, God must have made it perfect or, or something? 
That's right. And it's very much in a tradition that Pythagoras laid down for us physicists that we definitely use mathematics. And mathematics is this amazing tool and representation of physics that we've come to discover over the last 2,500 years. And it is based on harmony, in this case, geometric harmony, numerical harmony. And consequently, we now understand that our Western musical scale, which came about by Pythagoras himself, did have to do with whole integers. The ratios of the various frequencies generated in our Western musical scale is a result, in some respects, from ratios of the wavelength, in this case, of a vibrating string. Okay. So the ratios of simple whole numbers, 2 to 1 or 5 to 1 or 8 mm-hmm. to 1 or something like that, but not 8.68247 to 1.3 point, right? Mm-hmm. That's it. Whole, whole numbers. Well, you know, it's kind of tempting because actually when we learn more about the planets, we find that, you know, there are some sort of ratios there that are approximately correct. So, you know, maybe the idea wasn't terribly crazy. It wasn't crazy. But in fact, it actually took Johannes Kepler in the 1600s to return back to the Pythagorean idea of music of the spheres and use that as a device, as a research device, by assigning musical tones to the speed of planets as they went around the sun. Can you give us an example? What's an example? So for example, Mars, you know, all planets go around the sun in an elliptical orbit, which means that there is a time where the planet is moving very quickly around the sun when it's closest to the sun, and a time when it's moving much slower when it's furthest from the sun. And what Kepler did was to take the speed of those extreme limits and look at their ratios, just like you look at a ratio of a vibrating string, and he assigned notes, musical notes, to the motion of those planets. And it was through those notes that he was able to see a pattern and write down Kepler's three laws of motion. So again, it's this example of music of the spheres, going back to Pythagoras, as a mode of thinking to get you to the real stuff. It was able to get us to finally understand these laws of planetary motion. And that tradition has continued with us, even leading up to Albert Einstein. We'll hear more about Einstein and from Stefan Alexander, including more saxophone. Well, Stefan mentioned the fact that uh, blues has this very regular structure, the four beats per, per bar and the 12 bars per phrase and so forth, and said that might be an analog for what the universe could be doing. It's expanding now, everybody knows that, but maybe in the future it'll contract again, and then it'll expand again and contract again, just like the phrases of the blues. And, you know, if that's true, that would be very interesting because it might explain why our universe is so nicely set up for us to be here. We're in one of the good expansions, one of the good blues phrases. So the idea is that there may be an analogy between musical structure and the structure of the universe. That's what he's saying. I mean, both have patterns, right? And, you know, if you understand the patterns in one thing, you understand the patterns in other things. They both depend on wave phenomena. And, you know, that waves have very well-known phenomena. The mathematics of waves are the same, whether you're talking about music or whether you're talking about light or, for that matter, the Big Bang. Next. The inspiration that a young Stefan Alexander found in his 10th grade physics teacher and the musical inspiration that John Coltrane found in Einstein. It's Universal Music on Big Picture Science. From the latest in artificial intelligence to new apps and business upgrades, the tech industry is always changing and growing. So keep up with a Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes released nearly every day, the Daily Crunch gives you a brief overview of the biggest tech headlines, and it's all delivered in around five minutes or less. So you can easily hear about the latest updates while trying some of those updates for yourself. Listen to The Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.
We heard how music might inform cosmology, but the arrow can go the other way. One of the most popular musical pieces ever inspired by the heavens is The Planets, a suite of seven movements, each for a different planet, by the English composer Gustav Holst. Now, Holst wrote The Planets around the First World War before the discovery of Pluto, so no tune for Pluto. And since he was taking his cue from astrology, not astronomy, his suite didn't include the Earth either. Despite being about horoscopes, not telescopes, The Planets has been used as theme music in several movies, a slew of TV shows, and innumerable planetarium presentations. Gustav Holst was not the only musician to be inspired by the cosmos. Jazz saxophonist John Coltrane was drawn to the thought experiments of Einstein, says physicist and musician Stefan Alexander. Dr. Alexander's introduction to the work of both brilliant men happened in 10th grade by way of his science teacher, a Mr. Kaplan, who encouraged young Stefan's natural talent in physics, but also gave him his first tape of John Coltrane's music. Yeah, I think it's related to this question as to what is music, right? Coltrane's music, the first time I heard it, just had this unspeakable effect on me that I still up to this day cannot put in words. It struck my curiosity the same way when I saw a picture of Albert Einstein with these equations that appeared as a hidden code, all right? So it just struck this curiosity to try to go figure out this hidden code. Your teacher saw this in you. He saw that you recognized the code of mathematics and that you recognized the code of jazz as he did. Can you say a bit more about Mr. Kaplan? Yeah, so Mr. Kaplan was um, my high school physics teacher and was trained as a composer. And in the middle of pursuing his career as a composer, he was called to the Korean War. And he caught the physics bug while doing the radar out there. And when he came back, he became both a high school physics and music teacher and continued to play jazz as well. I, I think, yeah, so Mr. Kaplan... He was a big fan of, the biggest fan of Albert Einstein because he was so interested in the power of the intuition, in the power that Albert Einstein was able to, without really jumping into mathematics right away, was able to come up with these thought experiments, was able to use his intuition to transcend what is directly perceivable by, by a human being. I mean, he was able to understand space and time is warped and the four-dimensional structure of space and time just by coming up with these simple baby questions. And he was very much into the intuition, and he probably saw that I had a similar kind of mind. He did a thought experiment with you right in front of the class, right, about throwing up the ball. Yeah, he just walked into the class, the first day of class, and sat in the middle of the room and threw a ball up in the air and said, the velocity of the ball is zero when it was at its maximum height. What is the velocity of the ball when it falls right before it hits my hand when it came back down? And that was a question. This was the first day of physics class. And so I just intuited um, the motion of the ball in my head going up and down, up and down. And I rose my hand and I just said, it's the velocity right before it hits your hand as it fell is exactly the same as when it left your hand. And I didn't think much of that, um, but he thought that was a big deal because he thought that intuited the conservation of energy before he even taught it. And then soon after that, he's giving you the music of John Coltrane because he, he saw that you would be able to connect all of that in your mind, the mathematics, and that you'd also appreciate the music of this jazz musician. Yeah, so Mr. Kaplan was you know, a jazz lover, a jazz player, and a physicist. And I think that in his mind, in his world, those passions were, you know, connected. And I think he wanted to share that with me at a younger age and also show me that that it's okay to actually embrace both worlds. And, of course, that continued to be a struggle for me as I got older and tried to forge a career as a physicist while at the same time trying to, you know, keep my interest in music. You know, Stefan, you talked about the geometric aspects of the universe, and I wonder if there are jazz pieces that you listen to that sound geometric to you. 
Um, the answer is yes, I can hear the geometry. And that's one of the things that excites jazz musicians or attracts jazz musicians or even some listeners of jazz, which is that, you know, jazz is not just about the sounds that's coming out, but it's also about the ideas. And John Coltrane actually came up with this very interesting geometric diagram with all sorts of very interesting hidden symmetries. And it was clear that he was searching for some geometric structure to that music, would, that, to music mm-hmm. that would inform his improvisation. Do you think that John Coltrane and, and Albert Einstein had a lot in common? Big time, yeah. Um, in fact, one of John Coltrane's biggest idol was Albert Einstein. And he even told Dave Amram, the composer, that he wanted to do for music what Albert Einstein did for physics, which is to find a simple principle, a simple idea that would unify different branches of music. So if we were listening to John Coltrane for the first time, what kind of advice would you give for us to listen to Coltrane to try to hear some of that geometry or hear some of that structure? Yeah, so I think the most direct way is his album Giant Steps. In fact, that was the first time when I was a teenager when I heard Giant Steps, I was convinced that it had some geometry in it. To learn much later on that it literally had geometry in it. it. He was using what we call symmetric scales and basing his improvisation on those symmetric scales. Can you give an example of the scales? Yeah, so one scale that he would use is the so-called augmented scale, which is you can immediately geometrize music by basically putting all 12 notes on a clock. And we call that clock geometry or cyclical geometry. And then you can imagine inscribing a perfectly equilateral triangle within that circle. And the notes on the edges of the triangle makes up this scale called the augmented scale. It sounds like you need to be a, a physicist in order to play jazz. <laughs> no, not really. Again, you know, it's um, a lot of these things can just be understood by mere pictures. I mean, that's at the end of the day, I believe that a lot of jazz musicians and physicists are searching for a picture, and we use things to get us to that picture. Some of it will be equations, some will be intuition, some will be experimenting, making mistakes. But at the end of the day, we're after a simple picture. Can you play some Coltrane for us as a final note, as it were? Yeah, I can play. I'll play some Coltrane. Um, play something that is easy to play. John Coltrane's Mr. PC, played by Stefan Alexander, a professor of physics at Brown University and the author of The Jazz of Physics, The Secret Link Between Music and the Structure of the Universe. Stefan Alexander, thank you so much for coming into the studio, talking to us about physics and playing some music. Thanks for having me. You know, he really is the living embodiment of the bridging of two cultures. It's often said that the the arts and the sciences are two different things, And here he is, showing that not only are they related, but they may be related in a way that addresses the greatest questions that could ever be asked. Namely, how did the universe get going? Why is it here for us? And what's going to happen to it? You know that story he tells about being able to intuit how fast the ball is falling uh, as a 10th grader in his first experience in a physics class? That's just incredible. That is not a skill that I was born with. Well, but that's what you call physical intuition, and Mr. Kaplan recognized that. And Einstein also thought that intuition was very powerful and important. Intuition and imagination, yeah. So what we've heard in the show, well, the idea of the music of the spheres, I mean, that's a nice historic Greek idea. But there is sound from space. The sun, Jupiter, Saturn, they all make radio static. We can turn into sound. Pulsars, they're like metronomes. 
but a simple short chirp really beats them all. I mean, not only because it came from some colliding black holes in a galaxy long, long ago and far, far away, but because this may be a new and really important way to study the universe. These things could be going off all the time. There are things we can't see. You can't see black holes. With this kind of instrumentation, you can. But still, I'm blown away by the fact that people who have some insight to music also seem to have some insight into physics and cosmology. We want to sing the praises of the harmonious duo who helped produce the show, Gary Niederhoff and Barbara Vance, plus voice work from astrophysicist J.L. Galash. Thanks to financial support from Rena Shulsky David and Sammy David, and to the William K. Bose Jr. Foundation. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit scientific and education organization whose scientists study the origin and nature of life. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to the episode Musical Universe. I'm Molly Bentley. I'm Seth Shostak. If you'd like to hear more Big Picture Science, well, you'll find lots of episodes in our archive at bigpicturescience.org. And if you're a podcast listener, but you prefer listening to over-the-air radio because it might be a signal from 1.3 billion light years away, but probably not, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, consider letting them know that you like the show. And if you listen to the show via iTunes, we invite you to leave a review of the show on our iTunes page. Oh, and to reach us directly with your comments, well, be sure to throw in some faint praise. Email it all to bigpicturescience at seti.org. My movie about colliding black holes is gonna be big, but the collision? It's wimpy. I mean, a chirp? Chirp ain't gonna generate blockbuster ticket sales. You're an engineer. Can't you, uh, enhance it? You know, make the audiences really feel these cosmic monsters. Yeah, sure. I mean, we've got a sound archive here. Yeah, listen on the headphones. Check this out. I like it, but we need more, uh, explosion action. Okay, how about this? This isn't just a Hollywood film. This needs to sell on the international market. Make it more, uh, mayhem-y. Why didn't you say so? Okay, there. Now I'll play it on the monitors. Yeah, play it on the speakers. Sciencey Stuff Productions presents Colliding Black Holes. The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in-depth on the latest news in technology and culture. Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts.